All right, Rabbi Sai, welcome. We're going to begin today by talking about Agdomos. Agdomos is a very famous piyot that we have in our Siddur, which is a surprise because most of the piyotim, almost all of the piyotim are not included in the Chabad Siddur. Now the MS is that the Alter Rebbe's first print of the Siddur, which actually just became available in recent years, uh, if you look there, you see it was, it's, meaning the oldest Siddur that they have is printed in 1803 in Tov Kuf Samach Gimel. So it was, it was, it was, the Rebbe Rashab had it, and then it was taken away by the Russians. So it was, it's in the library, but they put it up a few years, in Russia, but a few years ago they put it up online. Um, so one could look at the whole Siddur, and uh, Akdomos is not there. Akdomos is actually not there. But later, somehow, it entered the Chabad Siddur. But Poyol, it's not Minik Chabad to do it. It says Sefer Amin Hagim that it's not Minik Chabad to do it. Though people say that they observe that the Rebbe did say it on his own between the Aliyahs on Shavuos, the Rebbe did say it. Fine. So here we're looking at the Akdamos in a very, very small machzer that has the tefillis of the Yomim Tovim of the year. Sometimes this is called, some people refer to it as the tiny machzer. The reason is because it's really small. 12 by 8 centimeters. So this is really, really small. It's, the, it's smaller than your, your, uh, your smartphone, or it's about the size of your smartphone in terms of the length of the, of the phone. Huh? 12 centimeters is like half your smartphone. What's Ostreich? Ostreich means Austria. It's a very small machzer, but here it's, you'll see, you're seeing it blown up. When was it created? Sometime be- between the years 1294 and 1325, and today it's at the JTS library here in New York. And here is the beginning of the Agdomos for Shavuos. Okay. Now, with regard to Agdomos, there's a little bit of a problem. And we're going to be discussing this problem. And this machzer is actually going to hold the key to the solution. So what's the problem? The problem begins with the Ma'aril. The Ma'aril was one of the Rishonim who lived in Ashkenaz, the last generation of the Rishonim in Ashkenaz, 1355 to 1427. Rabbi Yaakov Moilin. And he writes as follows. We say the Dibra of Akdamos Milin. Now, right here, I'd like to call your attention to the fact that he does not call Akdamos a piyot. He calls Akdamos a Dibra. Why is that? No other piyot, most of the piyotim that we have throughout the year are not called Dibrais. Here he calls it a Dibra. We'll return to that later. When do we say Akdamos Milin? After we finish saying the first Pasuk of Kriya of the first day of Shavuos, So in other words, the person, the Kayin, gets, gets called up. He makes the Baracha. The Baal starts reading the Torah. Pause. Pause. And that's when we read Akdamus Mil. But don't do Agdamos between the Bracha and Kriya Satoira. Why? They have a Hefsik. That's a Hefsik. That would be a problem of a Hefsik. If you do Bircha Satoira, Agdamos, and then the first Pasik, that would be a problem. So therefore, we do it Bracha, first Pasik, and then you do Agdamos Milin. After you finish Agdamos, then you continue with the second Pasik. Fine. So the issue here is that Poiskim asked the simple question. And doing it after the first bracha, that too should be considered a hefsek. Why is that not a hefsek? None other than the Taz, who's living in the 1600s, writes in his commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, he writes as follows, Yesh We have to wonder, Harbe, a lot, 
Heyach Rashaim Lahasik Bikriya. How could we take a break in the middle of Kriya Satira? Kosha came Bishava Khazan Shuene Minyan Akriya Klal. In fact, this Agdomus has nothing to do with Kriya Satira. If you read the text of Agdomus and its translation to see what it means, it's not talking about uh, what Kriya Satira is talking about. Salama, Yesh Lanu Lahasik, why are we making a Hafsik? You, you see the Maril was concerned about a Hafsik, but didn't think it was an issue to do it after the first Pasik. The Ta says, I don't understand. We shouldn't be doing it at all, even after the first pasuk. Says the Taz Vaita. V'shamati mikorov, and I heard recently shein higu rabbanim uvhakim that good serious rabbanim started a new minig l'shayre akdamos to sing akdamos koydem sheyaschel akoyen habracha shokriyas atayra before the koyen says his bracha kriyas atayra. So you call the koyen up. They do akdamos. You then have. Uh, the koyim make a bracha after and this makes sense in other words we see here that in the 1600s the taz and other rabbanim started making a macha about a minig and they basically said yes there is a minig that's been happening in a certain way but we don't like it we don't think it should remain that way we want to change it because it's the union of a hefzik and so here we have to ask ourselves why take why Taka did we start? Do we have a situation? Why Taka do we have a situation in where the, the, the Akdamos is being said in this way? The Taz is right, so why didn't this bother the Maril? How did this Minik even develop? So the truth is that this started an entire raid amongst the Poiskim in the 1600s and in the 1700s that you could justify, you could come up with a Hezber, that maybe it's not a Hefzik for this reason or for another reason, and people answered the Taz and said, no, we're going to continue doing it in this way, and there's a whole Arichis of a Shak of Artaria revolving around this issue. And the Alter Rebbe weighs in. The Alter Rebbe says, it's better to do it the way the Taz said, better to do Agdamos before you start Kriya Satayra, but if you insist on doing it the other way, that's fine, because you have Yeshama Alismoich, you have who you could be relying on. Okay. Something is very, something is missing about this subject. It is very, very, very odd. And this is an example in a case where the knowledge of history and looking back at manuscripts actually solved, cracked the case, and, fi- and we were able to figure out what happened over here. Why? I showed you before the beginning of Akdamos. On the right-hand side here, you see the end of Akdamos. Akdamos ends on the right-hand page. Ignore the left-hand page for right now. Akdamos ends on the right-hand page. What's all the way at the end of Agdamus? You see the last, the, there are four lines here um, where it says, that's the end of Agdamus. And right under that, you have, without Nikudus, you have additional two lines. What does it say over there? That's not part of Agdamus. What's that line doing there? What is that line? Well, that line is Targum Yoinusin for Shmois. Perek Yutes Pasek Aleph. Perek Yutes Pasek Aleph says in the, in the text, in the Hebrew, Pachodesh HaShet Lishi, L'Seis B'nei Yisrael Meretz Yisrael, Bayem Azeh Abol Midbar Sinai. And the Targum Yonason is, it gives the Aramaic translation. Although there are subtle differences between the way it's in this Machser and the way it's a Targum Yonason, that's because within Targum Yonason there are different uh, minor variations between different uh, manuscripts of the Targum Yonason. I'm pr- presenting here on the screen the uh, one that's printed in most Chumashim, but clearly it's the same uh, Targum, it's a Targum Yonason. So now we need to ask ourselves, why is it they have Akdamos with a Pasek from the Targum Yonason? What is a Pasek of the Targum Yonason doing at the end of Akdamos? 
So the answer is not too difficult to figure out, especially when you turn Viter and you look Viter, as we'll soon see what was happening over here. We know that Bismar Talmud, there was a Meturgaman in Shul. What was the job of the Meturgaman? The Meturgaman would, the Chazin, the Balkaira would read the text, the Hebrew text of the, of the Kriyas HaTorah. Uh, and then the Meturgaman, the Meturgaman would, would give an Aramaic uh, translation. Okay. This continued after the time of the Shas. It continued in Bavel for many centuries later. We see the Ga'inim still talking about the Meturgaman. So here we need to ask ourselves, what about other countries? What was the role of the Meturgaman in other places? When the Jews came to Spain, did they bring a Meturgaman with them? When the Jews came to Italy, did they bring the Targum with them? When the Jews came to Germany, did they bring the Meturgaman? Did they bring that custom with them? So there's a part of us that assumes that the answer would be no. Why would the answer be no? Because the Meturgaman is an Aramaic. So when Aramaic is a native language, it makes sense to have the Meturgaman. But if you move to Italy and now people are speaking Italian or Latin, if you move to Germany and people are speaking German and Latin, does it make sense to have a Meturgaman? Okay, fine. The MS is that the Meturgaman did come to some or all of these places. And it's an interesting study to figure out when did the custom of cutting out the Meturgaman, when did this happen? But the reality is that at least some of the times there was a Meturgaman. And, and, and definitely what we're seeing over here in this Machser is that there was a Meturgaman at least for Shavuos. Maybe, maybe it wasn't there for all year, but at least for Shavuos. What do I mean by that? To say there was like this. The Balkaira would read the first Pasuk. Naturally, the Meturgaman would get up to do the Targum of the first Pasuk. However, it's a special day. It's Shavuos. And so instead of just saying the Targum, you're not going to just, just say the Targum. In Birches Krishma, we add Yotzris. And in uh, Shemene Esre, we add Kroivitz. And we add a Kedushta. And we add all these different Piyutim into the Shemene Esre and into Birches Krishma. So shouldn't Kriyas HaToyro also have an addition Lechavit of the Yomtev? Of course it should have an addition Lechavit for the Yomtev. So what is that addition going to be? That the Meturgaman, before he says the Aramaic translation of that Pasuk, he's going to say a Piyut. And that's what Agdamos is. Agdamos is... I am making hakdama. Hakdama to what? I'm making hakdama to my Aramaic translation that I'm going to be saying about uh, uh, that, that we're going to be doing here Bitsibur. That's what Agdamus was, which is why after you finish Agdamus, he puts here what the Meturgaman would have been saying. The Targum of Yenis and Benaziu, Biyarchat Lisa, Le Afkus Bnei Yisrael Ma'ara de and he puts that translation there. Then what happens Viter? What happens Viter is, and the Chazan continues, Pasik by Pasik, and they go. The Baal says, Allah Kodesh, and the Meturgamon reads out the Targum Yonason in Aramaic. Once you understand that this is what happened, then, what, then we understand exactly how the problem developed with Akdomus. Eventually, this was cut out. Eventually, the Meturgamon was cut out. There was no need for the Meturgamon. We don't want it. Maybe you could imagine people were talking in the shul. No one understood what the man is saying. They didn't speak Aramaic. Davening was long enough with all the yitzvahs and everything. We have to get rid of it. And so they cut out the meturgamin. But Agdom, and as we're going to see, there were additional piyutim. There were additional piyutim that the meturgamin said. They cut all those out. But Agdomus was very, very powerful. Agdomus had a very powerful hold on the Jewish people. 
whether it's because of the content of the piyot, or it's because stories associated with the background of the piyot need not concern us here. The reality is that there was a very strong hold. They didn't want to get rid of it. They wanted to hold Agdomus. Okay, so they got rid of the whole Targum program, but they kept Agdomus. We're in its natural place. So what was the natural place? You read the first Pasuk, then you read Agdomus, then you went back to the second Pasuk. So this transition happened sometime during the era of the Rishonim. And we already see that the Maril, that the Maril, Vir was saying, this is the way we do it. This is the way we do it. And he didn't talk about doing anything else. He didn't talk about doing uh, additional uh, Targum. And he was fine with that. But by the time you come to the 1600s, the memory of this is completely lost, is completely forgotten. And now Ataka makes no sense. And in the entire conversation in the 17th century, no one even talks about this. They're all trying to come up with different svaris of why it makes sense. But the historical memory of how this ended up there was completely forgotten. It's only in the early 1800s when people started examining these types of machzorim and started seeing how it was, uh, was this understood. This also explains why the Ma'aril calls it Dibros. Why does he call it Dibros? Because, as I'm going to show you in a minute, every, before every Pasuk of the Aseras HaDibris, there was the same thing. You read, before every Pasuk of the Aseras HaDibris, there was a special poem in Aramaic that was composed along the lines of Akdamas, a similar style, in, uh, written in Aramaic, between each one. And naturally, what did you call this? You called them Dibris, because they were associated with Aseras HaDibris. So the entire package was called Dibris. All of these piyutim that were t- tied together with this Kriyas HaTayra were called Dibris. And this was the unique genre of what this was. And the name stuck into the times of the Mario, but later it was forgotten because people didn't recognize and realize what this was. Let's go further, and I'll show you how this Machser, if you turn the pages in this Machser, what we continue seeing. On the left-hand side of this page, huh? The question of Taz only applies if the Bakhira was one who was saying the... the, the uh... No, it doesn't matter. Whoever is doing it, it's still a Hefzik. doesn't matter. The Taz is Hefzik. Taz was bothered by Hefzik. The very fact that we stopped Kriyas Torah. And anyone is reading that. Thomas for the Taz was a Hefzik. Okay, so if you go weiter in this master, you turn on the left-hand page side, there's the Pasuk, three lines from the top, if you're able to see in a small script, it says, So the Baal Koira read his Pasuk. Now the Meturgama needs to get up and needs to tell us what it means in Aramaic. But instead of just telling us what it means in Aramaic, what does he do? He says a piyot first. What's the name of this piyot? This name of this piyot is Anaskinas. And you'll see on the right-hand side of that page, Every phrase begins with the word Anna, Anna, Anna. Why? That corresponds with Anoichi. I am the God who took you out of Egypt. So the Python here, what he did here is he constructed this poem and we're, we're saying, I'm the God who did this, I'm the God who did this, I'm the God who did this, an entire list of the maizim, of the things, the actions that Hashem did and continues on to the next page. It ends on the left-hand side and now we can do the Targum. And here you have a substantial Targum on the left-hand page for the first uh, um, uh, Dibra, Dibra Kadma. Now, it's a full paragraph. Why is it a full paragraph? That's what's unique about Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel. Targum Onkelos is almost word for word from the Torah. It's very, very, it matches the word the Torah. Targum Yonis and Ben Uziel is Targum together with elements of Mendrish that are woven into the Targum. And, and that's what they chose to use at that time. And this is what they were using in Ashkenaz during the period of the Rishonim. And that's what you have on the left hand side. After that, you see further down on the page, it says, That's the Balkhoira reading the second Dibra. And then, we need to go to the Meturgamon. But instead of the Meturgamon giving his uh, Aramaic translation, he does a piyot called Amin Shisin. And here, he goes into this piyot. 
If you turn the page, here's a continuation of this piyot. You're already able to tell on the left-hand side that we're going to be approaching artwork here in a moment because it's leaking through, it's leaking through the page. Uh, this is the piyot, and what's unique here is here we get an artwork. We don't have artwork for the first piyot, for the first dibra, but we get for the second one. And on the left-hand side of the page, you're able to see that there's a second piyot. This is unique. There are two piyotim that the Meturgamon did for the second, uh, for the second dibra. The first one we saw here is Amin Shisin, and then it, the next one here is Hananya Mishal Vazaria. And uh, on the right hand side, we have a full page of art of Hananya Mishal, the story of Hananya Mishal Vazaria. Let's take a closer look at that art. So here is the miniature on the top. It's a little damaged, but you can tell the Hebrew words on the right used to say Nebuchadnezzar, and that's, under that is Nebuchadnezzar sitting on a throne. And next to, uh, to the left of Nebuchadnezzar is a person who is pointing to three people. Those three people are, as the words tell us, Hananya, Mishal, and Azariah. They are wearing three hats. That's the Jew hat that Jews in Germany used to wear at that time. And you may notice that there's a rope around their neck that goes from each one of the people and that the guard is holding on to that rope. Their hands are behind their back. They are tied, uh, they are tied up. In other words, they're being brought before the king and they're about to be led away. What is the story of Hanan and Meshav Azariah in a nutshell? And Sefer Daniel reports that when the Yidim were in Galus Bava and Nebuchadnezzar was the king, Nebuchadnezzar said everyone has to bow to his idol. Uh, these three Jews refused to do so, and they were told they were going to die if they refused. They said they don't care, and they were uh, then led uh, to their deaths. Uh, their deaths, the, the, they were led to what was supposed to be their deaths, which but a miracle happened. The miracle is portrayed in the scene below. Before we go to the scene below, just notice here that Nebuchadnezzar is relatively small compared to the guard, okay? He's much smaller. It's not what you would expect. You'd expect the king to be portrayed in large form. Here you see that he actually looks a little dwarfed. Okay, we'll come back to that in a moment. It looks like the guy has a crown, he doesn't have a crown. Right, but the, his crown is, is, is erased. It was definitely there. Yes, it is interesting that the guard seems to have some sort of crown. Now, here's the miniature. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's a hole through the page. It's a tore. It's tore. It tore. Yeah. The next, uh, the image on the bottom. Here you have again um, Nebuchadnezzar sitting on his throne on the right hand side. On the left hand side, you have a kivshana esh. There is a fire. There's three people wearing that Jew hat inside the flames. And you may be able to see an image of a bird with wings that is protecting them. This is what the story says, that the malach came and protected them. And this artist chose to portray the malach in the form of a bird. We don't need to get into uh, the purposes of that. We'll see another example of that uh, soon. And indeed, they were saved. Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah were saved. Why did the artist put this here? At this the water's on top of the fire? Oh, that says... Uh, Gavriel, Gavriel. Those words, good. It says Gavriel. You can't see the the lamid. That says Gavriel because that's the malach who's uh, who who saves uh, who saves them. So if we go back here. So on the the reason we're having this is because on the left hand side we're having a whole piyut here about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So let's tap into this piyut a little so we get a feeling for what's happening over here. So the words here I, on the left hand side I put the Aramaic together with the Hebrew uh, interpretation. And basically what we're saying over here is that Hananiah, Mishal, and Arzariah, 
they uh, made known God's name uh, to all living people. When katein in the second line, katein lahoin nanasa, when the nanas came to him, when the nanas came to them and told them, what did he say? Come bow to my idols. You um, uh, is what the nanas told them. Amar lahoin nanasa. And you look in the parchment, the, you'll see Amar Lahain Anasa is in red. And that's a refrain that repeats itself throughout this entire uh, piyut. What does Ananas mean? Ananas means a dwarf. Ananas means a dwarf. Oh, so all of a sudden, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was drawn as a dwarf in the previous painting was not happenstance. It's actually uh, intentional. Where is this coming from? Why are they referring to him as a dwarf? We'll see in a second. Uh, on the bottom... Just to give you a little bit of a feel for this part of the piyot, it has, Hananiah and Mishon are talking. Um, Hananiah says, we trust in Avinu Shalomayla, in, in, in the Abishter. Uh, Mishal says, we trust in God from when we're uh, ch- children. Uh, Azariah says, we, are, we'll, we will be burnt in fire, but we will not deny God. Um, and they all say together, uh, we will not deny lo yelecha, the second commandment, which is what we're talking about. Now you see the relationship of this piyot, what is the relationship of this piyot to the second dibra? It's because lo yelecha these are people who live the value of lo yelecha where, where does the dwarf come from? Huh? In the piyot, they're just talking. It's a poetic, uh, it's a poetic conversation that they're having. Um, so uh, there is midrashim that actually portray and say that um, Nebuchadnezzar was a dwarf. If you look over here, uh, this is a Medrash Psikhtar Abbasi that says, Nebuchadnezzar tells the, the Jewish people when he takes them out into Golos, I want you to play the music that you played in the Beis Hamikdash in Yerushalayim, play for me. They looked one to another, Not enough that he destroyed the Beis Hamikdash, now he wants us to use our flutes or our instruments uh, in front of this nanos, in front of this dwarf. So where is this tradition coming from? It looks like the Chazal had some sort of tradition of uh, Nebuchadnezzar being uh, a shorter type of a person. And, um, and, uh, and that, gets, that becomes the poem and that becomes the artist uses that in his poetry. Now, the question I want to ask here is why uh, for this one, and this is the only one we get two poems. We get two piyutim for la yelecha, for all the other ones we don't. It goes on for much longer. Why is that? Why is it so uh, important for the Yidden to have two poems, uh, two piyutim uh, at this time? We'll come back to that later. Let's continue. Here, we move on to the third dibra. The third dibra, the Hebrew words on the right-hand side of the page. That's what the Balkaida reads. Now the Metorgamon is going to uh, say a piot to introduce the translation, and here we get an image as well. What is the image? Let's take, uh, let's take a closer look. You have, it's a Jew wearing that hat. Again, this is what Jews in Germany at the time needed to wear. And uh, it clearly says it's a, it's, a, it's a scene of an oath. It's a shvua, and um, there's a sefetera there. His left hand is on one of the atzechayim. His right hand is up in the ear. The man looks like he's in a seated position. Uh, the Sefer Torah is lying on what looks like the bima, and it says, Migdal Likriya, the Migdal Likriya. So there's actually a whole bunch of small ha'aris about this image that are very interesting. I didn't have time to study it closely, but a few things. Number one, why is he in a seated position? So the emesis, the Gemara says, that Shvuam Umad, 
Normally, when a person takes an oath in Bezdin, it has to be that he's standing. However, Tamad Chacham Yushav, a person who's a Tamad Chacham, because of Kavad HaToyra, he's allowed to sit down. So it's not up that someone would be sitting down when he's taking an oath, um, and maybe that's what the author here uh, had in mind. That's number one. Number two, we have a tshuva from Ari Vail. Ari Vail lived, lived a little after this master was written, about 100 years or so later, 1390 to 1460. And he says, he says, I once saw a case of Rabbi Yaakov Moilin, he's the Maril we saw earlier. There was a person who was obligated to take an oath in Atayra. So what did Mahari Moilin say? What did Maharil say? He's going to take his oath on Yom HaKnisa. Yom HaKnisa means on Monday and Thursday. Yom HaKnisa. He's going to say, he's going to take his oath on Monday and Thursday. After they, they took the Torah out to read, they did Hagba and Glila. So then, the man should then go to the Migdal and he will take the Sefer Torah in his arm, the Yishava, and he will do an oath. So what's interesting here? What's interesting is, well, we have here a man who has the Sefer Torah by the Migdal, using the exact same term that we have in this. Today we use the word Bima, but then the word Migdal was more, Migdal was more common, and we see that in Marival, and we see that in the art as well. And clearly the Torah has just been wrapped. So this looks very, very similar to the description to what we're seeing here in this image with one major exception. The major exception is that he, Marie Val, talks about the need to hold the Sefer Torah Bishas HaShvua, uh, which means you're holding it in your arm, uh, which is not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. He's holding it just with his left hand. However, we have another source from the same period of time. 13, uh, the Trumas Hadashan, Rabbi Yisrael Iserlin, lived in the same region uh, and the same generation. And he writes, Anu noigen begvoleinu, our custom is, shenishpa that he swears, and he puts his hand on the Sefer Torah when the Sefer Torah is in front of him, you don't need to hold it, even by a Shvua de Oiraisa. And that's what we have here. We have with his left hand holding the Sefer Torah. Now his right hand is raised, Minadin, there is no chiyuv to raise your hand, if you look at the Rambam, they don't talk about raising a hand, However, it is something that is mentioned, even in the Torah, it uses the Lashon Harimoisi Yadi to mean a Shvua that Avram says, I'm raising my hand. There's a few times in Tanakh where it uses this language of raising the hand, and so therefore the artist put it here. So this is a good example of, and this is a conversation that we've had on multiple locations, of sometimes an image is an image, but suddenly when you do a little looking into the Svarim, you're able to see that sometimes they actually really portray and convey halachas uh, and hagim that were happening at that time. Obviously, this connects to the third. Dibra, loisisa, shem, alekach, Hashem, alekach, alashav, is all about taking God's name in vain in the context of an oath. If we continue along in this machzer, we have on the top right, we have the fourth commandment, Shabbos, and then we have the piyot for Shabbos, right under it. Could you imagine how long Kriya Satayra looked? And this on, t- on top of all the yotzeres and everything. Shavuos must have been an all-day affair. Um, oh, all-night affair. Okay, fine. Um, and we have a little bit of art here. What's the art? It's a Shabbos scene. On the left-hand side. Well, let's start with the right-hand side. On the right-hand side, you have a man on the left. He's the man. He has the Jew hat, was only worn by the men. So he's a man. And the woman is on the right. She's already drinking these very, very exaggeratedly long uh, uh, bechers, 
uh, with stems, and the man is holding the same. And you can notice there are two chalas with a covering. And uh, the chalas are on top of each other. That's interesting. Today, most communities, the custom is that you place the chalas under the, side by side, side by side. Um, I, would, I would be interested in looking further, I didn't have the time, whether there was once a minig that under the challah cover they should actually be one on top of the other. That's something that's sarachion. On the left hand side you have the woman lighting Shabbos candles. Today we always envision Shabbos candles being like on a table, right? But in those days it was actually part of the lighting of the home, the chandelier. Uh, you, they had a special one that was used for Shabbos that they would light. Uh, and that's the scene that we have there. There are many other similar ones, just to show you examples. Here's two examples from way later. These are from the 1700s, from these different uh, uh, bracha collection artistic works that have survived, where you're able to see as well, the lighting of the candles is a chandelier that's uh, of sorts, that's hanging, uh, from, uh, that's hanging from the ceiling. And that's what you have over here as well. So uh, relatively recent that you have like uh, something that sits on a table or on a countertop or something, or something like that. What was that? Yeah, yeah. A uh, good chance that electricity is the, is the cause for that. If we move right along, we now move to Kibbut And on the right-hand side, you have the Hebrew for Kabbat Zavicha Vesimecha. On the left-hand side, you have a piot that's going to introduce what the Aramaic translator is going to say. And the piot is Amar Yitzchak La'avuy. Yitzchak said to his father. And this, these three opening words really capture the theme of this piot. Because the entire piyot is about Akedas Yitzchak. And it's all about Yitzchak wanting that Akedah to happen and wanting that it happen in the best way possible. So, Amar Yitzchak Lavui. And we have the artwork, and here's a closer up of the image. You could see on the left hand side there's an altar. There's Yitzchak lying on his back. Uh, Avram is holding him with his left hand, he's holding his head. In his right hand, he's holding the machalas, the knife. You can see here an angel again in the shape of a bird with a crown on his head, holding the knife back with the words Al Tishlach Yodchal Anar that's present over there. And on the right hand side, you have the Ayil Achar that's Nechaz Basfach Bikarnov, that is uh, 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 held, that is caught in the tree or in the wick, in the thicket. Akoponim, what we have over here is a scene of Akedah Sischak. Akedah Sischak, there are many scenes of Akedah that come from Achzoidim and Hakodis and the like from this period in time, uh, more than 20, more than 20. It was a very common scene for people uh, to be painting. Now, what does this have to do with Kibbut Ava'im? You know, till now, everything made sense. The Shabbos scene and the Shabbos piyot makes a lot of sense for Zachar, Yom Shabbos HaKashoy. The Oath makes a lot of sense for Loisisa. Hanan and Mishol Narzariah makes a lot of sense for Anoichi had a piyot that was all about Anoichi with no art. What's going on over here? Why are we having the piyot of Kabbadeh Savichav Esimecha honoring parents? We have this. So, obviously, you can give an obvious answer. That Yitzchak was doing Kibbut Ava'im by submitting to his father's wishes. So, it's Al-Derech Inyan Kibbut Ava'im. But we could all understand that that's not glatic. Yeah, it works, but it's not a glatic explanation. And um, that's right, it wasn't supposed to be a glatic explanation. What I mean by that is, the author, the, the ones who made the, the piyot, we don't know when it was. It could be these piyotim were not made for shvuas. It could be it was made for another time of the year. Lamdafka was made for shvuas. But the people, the community that chose, that they're going to say this on shvuas, as their agdama, to kabedes avicha v'asimecha, they knew that they were not doing a perfect fit. But for them, Akedah Sitzchak was a very, very important story. 
And because it was a very important story, even a doichik fit was going to be worth it for them to get it in there. Why was Akedas Yitzchak a very important story for the Jews in Ashkenaz in the late 1200s and the early 1300s? I alluded a moment ago to the fact that there were more than 20 paintings from different machzerim and whatever about Akedah. That also highlights how important of a scene this is. But why? But why? So let's go back. Let's go back to the And I noted there that all of the art so far, and this remains true, is only half a page. But for we had a full page. And we had two piyotim over there. So I asked over there, why? What's going on over here? The first piyot, has a line. What's the line? In Aramaic, it reads, Shataya eich omrin isle bar. Fools, how do you say about God that he has a son? God, there is no other, and no one else connects, joins with God. This line is right here, the top line in the, on the parchment, and it's again, it's a little harder to see because of the green ink that has spilled through. Clearly, this line is anti-Christian. Clearly, this line is anti-Christian. In other words, when Jews in the 1200s said the words, what were they thinking about? To them, what they were thinking about was Christianity. Christianity was a lekimacherim, and therefore they take a piyot that is an anti-Christian polemic that has these strong words saying it makes no sense to say God has a son, or that there's another entity that attaches himself or joins uh, uh, the Godhead, and so therefore, uh, and, and, and this is what they feel is important to say. So let's tie this all together. What's happening here? This is before censorship. Yes, so this is before censorship. This is written before the censorship. I, this page is damaged. I would look, actually this one survived. So I don't think this line was ever censored. So it would be interesting to see if this line was censored in other machzorim because it exists. So let's tie all these pieces together and what's happening here. You all know that in 1096 there was the Crusades. The Crusades sweep through Germany and they force many Jews to convert uh, to Christianity. Many Jews choose to die at their hands. They don't convert to Christianity. That's number one. Number two, it's also, we also know, and we have chronicles from the next generation, and halacha swaran that discuss this, which is not our topic for now, that Jews sometimes took their own lives rather than waiting for the non-Jews to come. They didn't want to get into the whole mess and the whole fight, and they were worried, what if at the moment I'm going to give them to the pressure, now I'm with people, I'm with together with the community, so we could sometimes, we could take our own lives. This was very, very controversial at the time, and it's a sheer and a topic for itself about whether this was mutter or whether this was also. In fact, there are some cases as well where the lives of others were taken, meaning there were parents who took the lives of their children to avoid them being taken into Christian hands. Again, very, very hard thing for us to understand and appreciate. And this was very, very controversial at the time. And there are sources that were yelling and screaming that this is terrible, but there were sources that supported somewhat as well, at least the taking of one's own life. This was a major thing that was going on at the time. I remember reading some of these chronicles a number of years ago. The theme of the Akedas Yitzchak is all over the place over there. And you could understand why. Because this theme of Akedas Yitzchak is where a father is ready to give up the life of his child in order, because this is what the Abishter wants. And they use language. They use language. The people in the chronicles say, this is like Avram, this is like Yitzchak, again and again and again and again. Hanani Mishon also you could understand, are very significant figures. In fact, this machzer here was written in the late 1200s uh, or the early 1300s. In 1298, there was the 
what was known as the Rindfleisch massacres. Basically, a Jew was suspected and accused of desecrating something that's holy to Christians. And as a result of that, there were riots that broke out in many communities in Germany, and many Jews were pushed and burnt al Kiddush Hashem. There was the blood libel in France in 1171, where a number of Jews, this was the first blood libel on continental Europe in 1171, where Jews were burnt at the stake in Blois, B-L-O-I-S. That actually happened on Chav Sivan, which is coming up. Uh, between the period of 1096 and when this Machser was written, there was a number of occasions where Yidin were called to have Mesiris Nefesh, were called to go and sacrifice their lives at Kindish Hashem. Sometimes they went that extra step. Sometimes it was more like Hanan and Mishal and Azariah, which is, they didn't do anything to themselves. They said, I'm not buying down to an idol. Nebuchadnezzar, you want to throw me into a flame? Go ahead. That, that was one scenario. Sometimes the scenario is more Akedas Yitzchak style, as I alluded to further, where Jews preempted and uh, took their own lives in order that, um, in order that, they, don't, uh, face, uh, they, that they don't face the difficult choice, uh, that they don't face any of those difficult choices. Uh, so putting all this together stands to reason. This would explain all the things that we're talking about. We have a piyot that's clearly anti-Christian in nature. And we get two piyotim. Why? Because this is the most important thing. So that's why Allah Yilachah is the only one that gets two because the people said this is something that we need to focus on. This is something that we need to be madgish. This is something that comes up from time to time. We need to build this value. We need to celebrate this value. This is something that, that we can't allow to slip away from people's minds. And when it comes to Kabir Tzadicha Vesimecha, I know it's a doichek, but what are we sticking in over there? We're going to stick in Akeda Sitzchaf. Why? Because that's a message that's relevant to us at our time, and that's why they're doing what they're doing. This, I think, explains a lot of what's going on over here. Let's continue. Let's go weiter. The next commandment is, um, is, um, is uh, the next commandment is don't kill. Don't kill. So don't kill. Here you have this scene. What's the scene? The scene here is Shloyma HaMelech who is watching as Yoyov is being killed by Benoyahu. Okay, this is what we learn in Sefer Malachim. After Shloimeh takes over, he is told by David that he has to kill uh, Yoyov because Yoyov had killed Avner and Amasa. And those, this is a, a cases of uh, of killing uh, that were immoral. And here Yoyov is actually punished uh, for that result. And you can see uh, the decapitation in, in, in live, live as, uh, as we look at this image. Uh, as we look at this image over here. Okay. Continuing right along, we move to then, Loisinov. Loisinov, what do we get for Loisinov? We get the story of Yosef, Eishas, Poitifar, and Chaverta. Why Chaverta? Because the whole piot that was written as an introduction to the Targum for this is all the conversation that Eishas Poitifar is having with a woman by the name of Chaverta, her friend, of how much she really wants Yosef and she's planning on getting Yosef. And so because the piot uses that, so therefore the artist did it. Notice that Yosef is wearing the Jewish hat. He's serving Eishas Poitifar a cup. Eishas Poitifar's hair is laid out and hanging and flowing down. Also the Chaverta. Now, from all the images that we've looked at in this uh, presentation and in others, women's hair in medieval art is never in this way. I take that as a sign of like Pritzus almost because they're trying to portray Aishas Poitifar here uh, as, as a, uh, as a Prutza. So in terms of the eyes and the faces, so this comes back to the conversation that we've had many times about the permissibility of faces and there were different opinions and it's very possible that initially there was there and then someone's not comfortable with it and is, is removing it. Uh, moving right along, then we come to Loisignoiv. Loisignoiv is very interesting. Here's the piot, and here is the image. 
On the right hand side, Loi Signoi, there's a man, there's some sort of dresser. The dresser is open and he's taking that big Kiddush cup that we saw before, that big Becher he's holding in his left hand. Uh, on, that's on the right hand side. On the left hand side, looks like there's a judge with a stick and there's someone who has been brought before him with his hands tied behind his back. So that looks like a judge who's about to give a sentence to someone who's accused of slavery. It's the same person. Okay, so the kind of the scene moves, his coat is a different color, but I hear you. Okay, he changed on the way, he changed on the way. Um, now, what's interesting about this, we all know, according to our tradition, Loisignoiv in the Aseret HaDibreis is not referring to stealing cups. It's not referring to stealing cups. It's referring to Goynev Nefashis. This is what Chazal tells us and Rashi tells us. Now, that's a question, right? Now look, what do you see all the way on the right? Not in red, that black ink, what is that? It's a gallow. It's a gallow. Now, it was not made by the artist. It's not created in the center. It's not created with red and with color. So my going theory is, my going theory is, uh, there is one paper that was written by a scholar on this machzer, but I wasn't able to get a hold of it. So um, that's why I, there's a little bit of guesswork here. I, I wasn't able to see what he says. But my theory is that the Jew gets this and says, Oi, Leisignoiv! Leisignoiv is not this. It's about gain of the fascists. It's not about stealing a becher. Okay, how do we fix this? Okay, let's add a gallo. Why? A gallo, when someone is gain of a cop, there is no death penalty. When someone is gain of nefashis, there is misasa bichenek. For kidnapping, is misasa bichenek. So this was a quick fix that someone did rather primitively to bring it in line with the Midrashim, um, with the traditions of Chazal. Um, it goes on. There's another two images here. A, uh, one is very primitive by false testimony. It wasn't even colored in. And then for Loisachmoi, there's an image of the story of Adam and Chava and the fruit and the snake. I mean, maybe because Adam and Chava were, 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 uh, had a desire for the fruit or because the Chazal tell us that the snake had a desire for Chava and the Piyutim talk about it and the art is it, but uh, they, they, they created Adam and Chava the way it is Lifnei HaChet, which is in, on, in, inappropriate for a shul, and so therefore we're not going to be presenting it. So Ad Khan is the first part of today's shir, which was this uh, little machzer. What did we gain from this? First of all, it's very unique. There aren't a lot of cases of a, a Jewish artist who did art for the Aserah Sandibris. We don't have that. There's very, very little of it. Here's one example from the late 1200s, early 1300s. More importantly, we're able to see how during this kufa in Ashkenaz, the experience of hearing the Aserah Sandibris was a very, very different experience. Uh, because of the long nature of these many piyotim that are being brought into the equation, and we see a drive for relevance, like making this relevant, uh, bringing stories and scenarios that make it talk to the people, uh, and the strong emphasis on Kiddush Hashem and Mesiris Nefesh uh, that, that Jews were called upon to have in that generation. Now, let's add one more thing. We all know about the Tama Elyein on Shavuos. The Tama Elyein on Shavuos. That what? Instead of reading the psukim, the way they're broken up normally in the Torah, we don't do that. How do we do it? We do each dibra as its own tune. Each dibra as its own tune. So for example, in the Torah, Leisignoiv, Leisinov, and Leisirtzach is in one pasuk. And so the Torah reflects the fact that it's in one pasuk, but we don't like that. We want to divide it. So we have Tama Elyon. And Tama Elyon makes it that it becomes a standalone. Loi, Tirzach, that's a standalone dibra. Okay, so why is this important? Why is it important to have Tama Elyon? 
So I always thought the answer is, it's important because we want to highlight how each Dibra is unique and standalone. Okay, but now let me ask, why is it important to highlight if God found it appropriate that for the Psukim to put three together, so what do you care? Do it three together. So I did. In other words, it's not just because each one's a separate Dibra is no real reason to change from Tama Tachtan Tama Oyen. So possibly, we need to research this, possibly, this may explain it all. We need to do a peyot between each one. We need to do a peyot. So by definition, you have to do loy tirzach. Okay, bring the metorgam in. We need to stop now. We need to bring a peyot. We need to do. So therefore, by definition, we fell into the tama elyon for this way. So if I'm right that this is what happened, so that gives a whole new perspective on how we ended up with the tama elyon, which is a little different from uh, the normal way of thinking about it. But again, someone has to look into this. I didn't look into it. Tzorichim. And then you would have the same question concerning uh, Pasha Sisro during the year. Why would we read it So we, we know that at this period of time they were for sure not doing Tama Elyon for Ve'ezchanan uh, and Yisrael. That's a much later minig to do Tama Elyon during those things. It definitely didn't happen at that time. So that also works with the theory. Okay. okay. Let's now move to a, a Matan Toyota scene. Last year I showed you a number of Matan Toyota scenes. I did not show you this one. And um, we're going to talk about this one. This comes from what's known as the Regensburg Chumash. It basically is a Chamisha Chumash Chumshetayra, together with the Chumash Megillus, together with the Chumash Megillus and the Haftoyrus. It's written around the year 1300, Regensburg's in Germany. It's at the Israel Museum. Unfortunately, most of its pages are not available and viewable online. There's very few pages uh, that are available. There are four or five pages that have art, where art was put in it. And here, let's discuss what we have on this page over here. So let's start, let's start at the top. You have a figure who's standing on top of the mountain who is holding a tablet in his hand and handing it to another figure who's a little below him and it looks like there's a tree separating them. And then that figure who's below him is handing the luchais to someone below him who's handing both luchais to the people who are standing on the floor. So what's happening over here? The pashtos, the pashtos, it's so whited out on this uh, screen. I have a much... No, no. You're able to see? Yeah. yeah. yeah? Okay. So this is the Pashtus Moshe Rabbeinu. This is the Pashtus Aaron. This is the Pashtus, one of Aaron's children, the Koyen. This is the Jewish people. This is Harsi. Now, let's look at this and this. Here you have seven loops. Here you have six loops. One, two, three, four, five, six. There you have seven. So. Uh, what's happening over here? Uh, I believe that there's a lot of chazal that's happening here in this image. First of all, that the, uh, the Moshe Rabbeinu, all the Jews, they're wearing the hats that are the Jewish hat, which we spoke about earlier. So let me show you a few chazals that are brought into here. First of all, what's the number of seven of those round things? So we know from other art, these round spheres represent the rekiah. Remember, the way the Torah speaks about the sky, the sky has seven different layers to the sky. There's Rekiah, seven different, we speak about seven different layers of heaven. So, Sheva Rekiah. So then, what's the six? So here, first, let's see, why is the seven relevant? So Rashi in Dvarim says, when the Ebishter gave the Torah, Dvarim, Perek, Dalit, Pasuk, Lamed, Hei, when the Ebishter gave the Torah, he opened the Sheva Rekiah. In other words, Chazal wanted to uh, convey that God, like Altus often, the entire uh, system of Shamayim is completely open. Also, the lower world uh, uh, down here, everything was open up. And why was the purpose of this? To see that there was no one else hiding. No one else was there. 
uh, they looked in Shemayim, they looked in the Oretz, they looked everywhere, and they couldn't say, oh, but there's something covering. There was nothing covering, because all seven layers of heaven are open. This is why it says, you saw. So, I think it's reasonable to say that our seven, the sphere of seven, here we have a gap in the middle. So in other words, there's seven, it's like a gap, because Hashem opened the seven layers of Shemayim for the Matan Torah to happen. But then I was wondering, what's the deal with the six on the other side? Why would there be six? So the MS is that uh, six also plays a role here. The Gemara Menachas here on Daflam Etesamet Aleph is talking about the tzitzis, the chulias that we make for our tzitzis. And it tells us that you shouldn't make less than seven. Why not less than seven chulias for your tzitzis? Because that corresponds to the shiva rikiyim. Then it says, don't make more than 13. Why? Because that corresponds, 13 is seven and six. Seven corresponding to the shiva rikiyim, and shisha, six, correspond to the shisha avin in shebeinehem. In other words, there are seven layers of heaven, according to Chazal, but between each layer, there's an avir. So you have six, and you have seven. So if you go back to this image, I don't think it's so crazy to suggest that the artist was trying to convey this idea that the heavens, the sheva rikim, and the, seven, the six gaps that were in between them, all of these are opened up b'shas matan So that's Chazal number one. Chazal number two, that I think is conveyed over here, is what Rashi tells us in Shmoy's Perekutes, Pasach of Dalit, how each uh, Moshe and Aaron and the Koyim and the Yidin had to be separated. Hashem tells Moshe, Ata mechitza, mechitza you're going to be in your own station during Matan Torah. The Aaron, Aaron is going to be at his own station during Matan Torah. The Haim, the Haim is going on the Koyim. They're going to be in their own station, meaning Aaron's children, <coughs> during Matan Torah. Moshe, Nigash, Yosem, Aaron. Moshe gets closer than Aaron. Aaron gets closer, Yosem, in Akoyanim. The Ha'am and the people call Ikar, absolutely not. Al Yersu, Matzav, and Hashem, they should stay where they are now. Well, that's exactly what we have here. We have four Matzavim that are here, and notice there's a division between. There's a tree that seems to be dividing between Moshe and Aaron. There's a tree that seems to be dividing between Aaron and the person below who's receiving the Luchais from him. And then there is Pasar, a gap in, in space, and a tree that is dividing him from the rest of the people. So this is another uh, thing. Although we, we speak about Ma'an Torah, it's all the Yidden being there together, that is true. But there was, we, also, we believe in equality. We also believe that there's a, there's a role for Moshe, there's a role for Aaron, there's a role for Kainim. Each one has their own thing. There's another Chazal that seems to come through in this image over here. And that's, if you notice, it does look like the mountain is hanging over them. Because you have to ask yourself, what is this thing over here? So it looks like, it looks like this is the mountain, and the mountain ends here, and this is flames in red, and it's hanging over their heads. Um, that, that, it's a plausible read of what's happening here in this, uh, in, this, uh, in this image. And if so, that's another chazal. That would be a third chazal, because we say the Gemara in Shabbos says, uh, the Pasuk says, the Jewish people stood, literally means the foot of the mountain. However, you could also interpret it to mean under the mountain. He held it over to them like a barrel, and he said, if you accept the Torah, great. And this is where you're going to be buried. Now, Toysus asks a question over here. He doesn't understand why Jews need to be coerced into taking the Torah. Didn't they do Nasav and Nishma earlier? happened in the day of Matan Torah. But earlier, a few days earlier, they already said Nasal Nishma. So what's going on over here? So Toysus struggles with this question. And his answer is, 
they, Hashem was worried maybe they're going to back out of it. So that's what this became. Hashem was partially worried they're going to back out of it. As we're going to soon see, Siddhas gives a, a completely different explanation to this. On the theme of Kof Aleim Harkikigis, we have a Rambam. This Rambam was created at the same Tkofa in the 1290s. Today it's in Hungary. This is the 12th book, Sefer Kenyan. And there's a little small art piece that's here. And this is the image of the art. It's a very, very odd image. Because clearly Moshe Rabbeinu here is being portrayed standing on top of the, uh, a mountain. And he's holding uh, one tablet. And maybe you're able to see there's a hand that's sticking out over here that's giving him the, the luchos. But then there's, what is this? This thing that's sticking up with the faces inside is a very, very bizarre way. It's like the Jews are high up. They, they be- belong below. And why are they inside this whirlwind over here? It's just a very, very odd image. So someone did some investigative work over here and looked and found something very interesting by looking at infrared and other technologies. You're able to see what was there in the Madura Kama. What they found was that initially there was an image of a person handing the luchas to God, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu. And it looked like that the, this was a, someone made a represent, a non-Jewish artist made a representation of God as a human being handing a luchas to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu. So his theory goes that when the Jew gets this, he's like, no, we can't, I can't have God represented as a human being. Jews don't believe in that. And so therefore he had to cover it up. So he had to cover it up. So he figured, you know what? Let's get this kafaleim harkigigis scene into this image by basically putting, painting it like a mountain and now making a window at the top of the mountain and through the top of the mountain, through the window, you're able to see how the Jews are under the mountain. So it looks like this was a, um, a second attempt at fixing uh, this. Why is this on the page of uh, Sefer Kinyan of Rambam? So I don't know, we could speculate. In Sefer Kinyan we have Hilchas Mechira. I don't know how that's related to Ma'an Torah. But we have Schiyo Matana. We have Hilchas Schiyo Matana. Torah is definitely called a Schos and a Matana. So maybe it's that. Hilchas Schenim. Hilchas Schenim. So we, uh, there's many Svarim that talk about, uh, not at this time, I don't believe in the, uh, it's a little anachronistic what I'm going to say. But the argument of Bar Metzra. The argument of Bar Metzra is in Hilchas Schenim. So although people weren't talking about this in 1296, but it's a Geshmaka thing to note. Hilchas uh, Avadim, that may be it, because Kilibene Yisrael Avadim, Chazal tell us that happened. When did Yidin come Avadim? It happened at the moment of Matan Torah. So maybe it's one of these that triggered uh, the artist uh, or the patron to ask for that specific thing. Now, on this topic of the Regensburg uh, uh, Chomish that I showed you before, and this image that we were looking at, so there's a scholar named Michal Sternfall, and she gave a talk at Chabad and Oxford University a few years ago. And she uh, discussed a number of things about uh, this uh, book. And uh, here's uh, interesting, some interesting things of her findings. She did also infrared imaging of this image. So on the left-hand side is the way the image looks to us. On the right-hand side, you're able to, are you able to see? Yeah, you should be able to see. This is the painting, the way it was actually executed. But right behind it, you're able to see there's a nose here coming out like this, like the mouth. And that's much starker going out much further. Likewise here, this is the painting the way it is, but there's another nose that wasn't painted that's a lot, uh, um, that's a lot more extreme over there. Um, here's another example. Uh, you are able, again, to see on the right-hand side both the image, the way it's actually executed, but behind it there's an outline of an image where the features are much more extreme. So her theory is that uh, there's a non-Jewish uh, person who's told to make this art. 
And we know from non-Jewish art that sometimes they would portray Jews with very uh, extreme uh, features, uh, scary-looking features or uh, long noses or the things like that. Um, and so the person's like, oh, if I'm making Jews, I might as well, I might as well make it look that way. And then at some point it becomes clear, oh, no, no, this is for the Jews. You're actually making this for the Jews. So you have to kind of redo it. And so they kind of redo it or something. Uh, anyway, that's her theory. It's an interesting theory. Now, a little more about this Tanakh, the Regensburg Chomish. If you notice here, here's a page from Parshas Vayetze. You'll notice there's no alignment on the left. All of the manuscripts, when we look at them, we always see the cipher always tries to do alignment to get the lines even at the left. Here, there's no alignment uh, at the left. In fact, there's the beginning of Parshas Vayetze right over here. And you're able to see this initial word, Vayetze Yaakov, with design was added later. Meaning the initial draft did not have any design over here, which is why it's squeezed in. That's a little bizarre. Uh, what's also bizarre is you have some pages that have really terrible layout. Look over here of how the line, then you have space, 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 and then Vayasu Bnei, and then space, space, space. It's just some of this very, very bizarre. The next page also, like very elongated. Look at the second line, Ha'isha. Look how long uh, that final He is, which is way beyond anything that's uh, uh, necessary. So uh, she studied this as well, Michal did, and she wanted to know what is happening in this uh, Chumash, because there's no parallel to this in any of the manuscripts that come from this time. What did, well, what did she find? All the way in the back, there's a colophon over here. And it says, the left-hand side is, the, the, is an image, and the right-hand side is my typing, where it says that um, this is, There is 150 pages here. And why do I have this work? This was created to copy Sifrei Torah. This was not created for liturgical use. This was not created to have something fancy. This was created to copy Sifrei Torah. With the, th with the method of and 60 lines. And every Amud on the page. What is happening over here? What's happening here is as follows. During this Kufa, in the 1200s, someone came up with a chap. You know with the Megillah, how there's this Chumrah to have, some people have that every column, almost every column should begin with the word Hamelech. It's nice, it's cool if the beginning, if the initial word is always the same. So someone came up with a chap. Imagine we can make a Sefer Torah where every letter, the first column, the first letter of every column also begins with the same letter. Be very, very nice. Now, if so, what letter are you going to do? Which letter appears most in Tanakh? The Vav, or at least the, the beginning of the word, the Vav is always used. So let's do the Vav. They call this Vavei Ha'amudim. Why? Vavei, Vav, Ha'amudim. Each Amud should begin with the Vav. And they started doing it at this time. This Chumash over here was created as a model. If you wanted to make a Vavei Ha'amudim Sefer Torah that would have 60 lines in each column of your Sefer Torah, which gets you a Vav at the top. And in order to do this, the guy didn't care about his left margins. And what he was focused on was how the beginning of each line begins and ends. And that's why you have these extreme spacings uh, uh, that are just not common for Shchumash uh, that you're going to be using. We have the Hagois Maiminis, who lives Mamish during this period of time, criticizing this. And he calls them Seiferim Burim, fools, who begin each Amud with a Vav. And they call it Vav Amudim, Niresh Iser Gomer Yesh I think it's forbidden. Because you make ugly pages in your Sefer Torah, and he just doesn't like it. That's the Agoyz Maimonis. Uh, however, in the 1300s, we have a rabbi by the name of Menachem Siyuni. And he's the first rabbi that we have on record who comes out and supports this. 
and he says, There's a Pasik that says in Parshas Pekude that says, This is talking about the gold being made for the hooks for the Amudim of the Mishkan. But he made a Moiridikatach. The number, Aleph Ushva Mez Fachamisha Vishivim, is seventeen seventy-five. If you take all of the Aleph base, Aleph base, Gimel through Tuf, and you add it up in Gematria, and then you add two Mems, because there's a Shlas Mem, two Nuns, because there's a Langa Nun, two Tzadiks, because of the Langa Tzadik, two Pays, and, uh, 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 and two Chafs. And two Chafs, if you add all that, it equals 1775. So, in other words, the 1775, what's 1775? Aleph Beis. Where's Aleph Beis used? Its primary use, the Torah. So the Torah, the Aleph base, which is the Torah, you need to make it in a way where each Amud begins with a Vav. That's how he touched uh, this. And then what happened was that eventually in 1769, someone published a Sefer in Amsterdam that's called Ezra HaSoifer to help Sefer actually make it look nice. And Atayoim, there are Kehillists that have Svarim, there are Vavim, Lamudim. I never checked our Sefer Torah over here to see if they are or they're not. I don't know how common it is, but this is something that is also interesting about the Regensburg, uh, about the Regensburg uh, uh, Tanakh. Okay, so we completed the second part. The first part was about the... Uh, Asera Sadibris in the tiny Machser. The second part was about the Regensburg uh, scene of Matan Torah, which led us into the Vavaya Amudim. And I'd like to conclude by talking about the Ksuba. We'll go for another seven to eight minutes. And we'll do the question after? Yeah. All right. Here you have a piece of art, a Ksuba. Okay. Here we have a tickle, oh, here we have a uh, image of a ksuba. It's an image of a ksuba from the 17th or 18th century, and it's held here at the Jewish Museum in uh, in, uh, in in New York City. Uh, but you read the text of the ksuba; it's not talking about a chassan the way we think of a chassan. It's not talking about a kala the way we think of a kala. It's actually talking about uh, matan Torah. And the chassan here is the Abishter, and the kala is the Jewish people. And there's a whole ksuba that's being written between the Jewish people and the Kala for their marriage. When is this marriage going to happen? As we'll see, on Shavuos, on Shavuos. This is done artistically, and it was read in shul. These types of things were read in shul during davening. Well, I'll show you soon. And around it, there's art. You have Moshe on the left-hand side with Aluchis, Aaron with his begadim on the right-hand side. On the top, you have imagery of Matan Torah. There's the tents on the left-hand side. In the middle, is, uh, is a Har Sinai, and it looks like Moshe Rabbeinu or something was going up the mountain. On the right-hand side, there's more tents. And on the bottom, there's scenes from Moshe's childhood being put in the river on the right, being taken out of the river uh, of the Yoyer on the left, and at the scene of the burning bush uh, in the middle. What's the background to this ksuba? When was it made? What is the history? It's actually a very, very interesting thing. The Mishnah in Tainus says that in Shira Shirim, when it talks about the chasana and Shira Shirim, and we know that Shira Shirim is a conversation where God is the chasana and the Jewish people are the kala. So, this is a reference to Matan Torah. So, in other words, Matan Torah, how are we supposed to think about this event? You can think about this event in many ways. One way to think about it is Dafka as a wedding. And we have in the Zoyar, where the Zoyar of Shimon says, when people would gather on the night of Shavuos by the Shimon, he would say, Let's put together the ornaments of the Kala, begin the Sish 
lemachar, so that she will find herself tomorrow b'tachshitoha v'sikunoha legabe malka. So, in other words, the whole concept of tikkun lel shvuis. What's tikkun? The word tikkun is tikkun is tikkun aguf when you're beautifi- beautifying yourself. The Jews are beautifying themselves because tomorrow we're getting wedding, we're getting married, and kalos beautify themselves the night before uh, the wedding. In fact, the Tashbates, who comes from Ashkenaz. He's, this, he's also a Talmud Maram at Rottenburg, so he lived in the late, 17, uh, late, late 1200s and early 1300s. The Bshimshim Ben Sadik, he writes that the reason we have candles by our chasanas today is because Mantena is the chasana and there were candles there. What were the candles there? The thunder and the lightning. And then he says, You should take this principle and know this. All of the customs of the chasan and kala today at a wedding, we learn it from because God is the chasan and the Jewish people are the kala. This is very interesting. So now you need to review all of the minhagim of a chasana and you need to see in what way was this found at Matan So the truth is, other people already did this work. For example, the breaking of the cup, many different things have been said about it. The Marashal, writing in the 1500s, already said that this commemorates what happened right after Matan the Shvidas Haluchas. The Chupa, the idea that we are sitting un- uh, standing under a canopy. So the Mata Moshe says that this reminds us of Kafa Lehem Harkigigis. The fact that the chasana has to be in the place of the kala, there's a mimer of the middle Rebbe where he says, that's like our wedding, the Mount Torah wedding. It didn't happen in God didn't take us up to Gan Eden, it happened down here. We're the kala, it happened down here in our world. This is a vart from the middle Rebbe. The fact that people make somersaults at a wedding, so the Nachman of Breslov says that this is the Bittel Akzeda, Yoinim. Yardu lamata, the head goes down, and the feet, the tachtoinim, alu lamayla. Shadchin, the idea of an intermediary, so the Sasama says this is my shalabedu, and there are many more sources like this. What's the point in all this? I, there's two things. One is, we want Jews during their weddings to be thinking about Matan Torah. Okay, I don't know, I, that doesn't resonate so strongly with me. I don't think it's so much that. I think it's more the other. We want Jews to be thinking about Matan Torah as a wedding. And so therefore, we, we do all these things at a wedding so that we remind ourselves and we teach ourselves that Matan Torah was a wedding. So we bring more Matan Torah things into our, into our chasana. This is the background. It's interesting the, how you brought down Shiraz HaKais or Shiraz HaLukas. Yeah, yeah. There are other reasons for all these things. There are other reasons. For every single thing on this list, there's another reason. Yeah. The Gemara's reason of breaking the cup is a different reason entirely. So this gives you the background to this school. Now you understand when we come to Shavuiz and we have a Ksuba over here, all of a sudden you realize this fits into a paradigm that's already going back to the times of the Mishnah and that wasn't always emphasized, wasn't always emphasized, but we're seeing it emphasized in the generation when this Ksuba is being made. So let's have a look at the text of the Ksuba for a minute. Here you have initially the date, B'yoyma de Shabza on Shabbos, Antoira was on Shabbos, on the 6th, to the month of Sivan, the view that uh, Mount Torah was on, on Vav, and it gives a year. What was the year? Beis Halafin Tov Memches, the year. Okay, and that's the minion, the Anumayin Khan here in the Midbar Sinai. Okay, so that's one highlight from it. The next one is uh, Utsvias. Utsvias. Every Ksuba says that after the man proposed to the woman, the woman agreed. And you have that here as well. Utsvias, the woman uh, agreed and said Nasa Nishma. 
and said, What I find interesting about this is this moves us a little bit away from Kafaleim Harkigigis. The language of she agreed and the language of Kafaleim Harkigigis in the literal sense aren't so, um, aren't so compatible with each other. And that's why we're going to come to the Vart Chsidis in a moment. Another highlight from this is what is the man giving? Uh, what is the man giving? What is God giving? So there's a ksuva commitment. So what he has over here is, is the Torah. The Torah is what the Abishur is giving to the Kala. And then there's a Toisafes ksuba, uh, the added money that's beyond what Chazal made a Takana. So what is that? So that is the Torah Shabal Peh. Mishneh, Gemara, Sifra, Sifrei, Mechilti, Diktuke Torah, Diktuke Seifrim, V'chol Masha Asidin, Masha Asidin L'Chadesh. Okay, then what do we have? Uh, uh, later over here we have, um, even if you are going to be exiled, uh, Hashem says, I commit not to uh, abandon you, I will never abandon you, and if you are captured, I will bring you uh, back to your land. This is a very interesting line. Our Ksubas do not say this, but at the time of the mission of the Ksubas used to say this. The Chassam would write, if you're captured, I'm not going to let you leave you alone. I'm going to redeem you and bring you back to the land. Here it's put in, in like if you're captured in Golos, I'm going to bring you back to the land, Eretisrol, the, the concept of redemption. And then we have at the end, the witnesses are Shemayim Ba'aretz, are the Eden. So I said, this was written in the 16, 1700s. This it was in a second, we'll get to Lavram Fried. This is not Lavram Fried yet. Where did this come from? Who invented this genre of Aksuba? Rabbi Yisrael Najara. In 1599, he printed a sefer called Zmiris Yisrael with many of his poems, many of his songs. He's most famous for the uh, Zemer Kar Riba in Alam that people sing on Shabbos. Uh, and here he printed many different uh, Nagunim and songs. Here his dates are uh, uh, 1555 to 1628. Uh, there are a number of streets in Israel that are named for him. And here you see his name on the title page of the sefer printed in Venice in 1599. And you have on the left-hand side, Ksuva L'chag Hashvuz. He's the first one to do this. He's the one who invented this. And he writes over here, La'imra Sefer Torah. When you take out the Sefer Torah, um, and maybe when we're walking it to the Bima, uh, this is the time to read uh, this Ksuva. Now, it's not the exact same text that I showed you before, but there's a lot of parallels. Here's the text of his Ksuva. There's a lot of parallels. Namely, God commits to protect the Jewish people and never uh, get rid of them and always remain loyal to them. And the Torah is the money of the Ksuba. And Torah Shabbat is the extra money of the Ksuba. Uh, there's some interesting things over here because he has different cheshben for the dates. He has uh, Matan Torah happening on a Friday, uh, Shisha Sivan. And that's not according to the Gemara, though there are other sources and perhaps a mechilta that suggests uh, that way. So there are some interesting things when you go through this suva uh, that, you, that a person, uh, that we can notice, but we're going to jump over it. So the, the artistic suva that I showed you before is not the same thing, but Yisrael Najara is the creative person who came up with this, and then many people created their own versions of it, and this was, and still is, read in many shuls, in many congregations, uh, uh, in the Sephardisha world, and, and in other places as well, where this is read. This is all the ksuba. Someone came along and said, hold on, by Ashkenazim, not only we do a ksuba, but, but we also make tenayim. Sephardisha, I don't think they made tenayim. But we make tenayim. What's tenayim? The conditions of where the wedding is going to be, and how much dowry is coming in, and all of that. And so... It was developed, Tanoim as well, to be read in some communities together with the Ksuba. They do the Tanoim and the Ksuba. Now, 
few weeks, a few months ago, the library here, the Chabad, the, the Rebbe's library, they took a lot of their manuscripts and they put it up online. That's available. Most of the stuff they put up online is the Ksavim of the Rebbe. But there's also the concept of a Bichol. A Chassid's Bichol. What's a Chassid's Bichol? A Bichol is where basically you had Sforim that were printed. But then you come across miscellaneous things that you want. So you have a big loose leaf, a big binder, and you just add things in. You're always, you have, oh, can I borrow your bichol? I want to copy the letter that you have from the Mittal Rebbe that was never published. I want to copy it into my bichol. There are hundreds of these bichlach, and they're here in the library. Amongst the bichlach that they put up, there are four different versions of this, meaning in four different bichlach. What does it say over here? Nusach Tanoim, Me'admar, Arav HaKadosh, and here we come to this time. So it's attributed, and it's, most of it is in the library. It's interesting. Manuscripts. It's not Reb Levi Yitzchak's handwriting. But it's people who wrote it down, and they attribute it to Reb Levi Yitzchak and Bardichev, and there's three or four here in the library, and one or two in other places in the world, where sometime during the 19th century, someone wrote this down. So it seems it was a tradition that Reb Levi Yitzchak and Bardichev did do this, um, and this is the Avram Fried song. The Avram Fried song, Shtar Tanoim, is, uh, is, is uh, this text. Okay, so this is building on this genre. Now, I'd like to take a step back and make a conclusion as follows. We started out by looking at the Aseras Hadibris experience in Ashkenaz in the 1300s. And if I can say, I think the overwhelming feeling at that time was the feeling, the emotion of Besidus Nefesh. The things, how we have to be willing to go to the end for Hashem. That was the overwhelming feeling. Then we have Rabbi Yisrael Najara and this whole genre, which goes a little bit in a different direction. And that is the ksuba, the relationship of love, and the fact that there are so many commitments that God has uh, toward us. Of course, both of these are true. And throughout history, Jews always knew both of these are true. On the one hand, we're a husband and wife, and God loves us, and, uh, and He's always there for us, and He's caring for us, and, and He's responsible for us. But also the emotion of that we need to be loyal to him and perhaps give up everything uh, for his sake. And at times, one was underscored more uh, than others. And I leave it to you to figure out which one uh, to decide which one today uh, we underscore and we talk about more. Uh, but I do think you see here a little bit of a transition and an emphasis from a language of Mesidus Nefesh and a language of we have to give it up all for God to a language of more no, that's not what Shavuos is. Shavuos is about entering a love relationship with Tzviyas, one where we... It's not kafa, it's as we agreed, it's a love relationship, we want to be here, and the Ebishter is in it for us, which leads us in to the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe answers the question of Toysus. Toysus' question is, why are you hanging a mountain over them? They already said Nasa Vinishma. So, so Toysus answers a funny answer. He's scared they were going to back out. Zakt Alter Rebbe, no. Kafa Lehm Harkagig is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. What's the metaphor? God bestowed so much love on the Jewish people from the moment of Yitzhiya Smitzrayim. There was so much Yisarusa Dela'ilah, it automatically triggered that Yidin are going to say, Nasa Venishma. Fakert, why did the Yidin say Nasa Venishma? Because so much love was shown by the Ebishter. So, and it, it surrounded the Jews. And that's what they said, Nasa Venishma. And that was a chsar, so to speak. Why? Because it didn't come from them. It wasn't come omata. So here you see as well, with Alter Rebbe is emphasizing the concept of love. The concept of love, where we're not in this because we don't want to be in this. We're, we're, we're in this because we want to. The Ebishter did do his uh, job in, in being ma'irer, that ava. So let us hope that this year by Matan Torah, we are able to do both of these in the right way. On the one hand, for us, 
to try to find the love relationship between us and the Abishter, but also for us to recognize and remember that sometimes we have to make sacrifices and Baruch Hashem, it's nowhere close to what those Jews needed to do in that time, but sometimes a shtickle sacrifice is necessary for Avedis Hashem. Okay. Now we'll take the questions. I'm sorry I went so overtime.